0: I want you to get that Bible out and open it to the book of Hebrews. And as we talk about the gospel, we want to talk about drawing near to God. When I talk about drawing near to God, a lot of times when we give you that, that word, we need to draw near to God, it's often a command, right? It's a, come on, guys, let's draw near. And that's, we're going to get a little bit of that this morning, but we're also going to get the reason you can draw near. Not only the reason you should draw near, but the reason you can draw near which is huge. It's a big deal. We forget that people died. People died because they were, not, they were not worthy of the presence of God and they tried to go where they couldn't go. We forget that there were people for centuries that wanted to get close to God but were kept at a distance because of their own shortcomings. We forget that God throughout history was saying, come closer, come closer, come closer. That our God is not a God who pushes us away. Our God is a God who draws us near. And when I'm talking about the gospel, one of the greatest, best news things about the gospel, that was a terrible sentence, but you understood it. One of the best things about the gospel is that Jesus made a way for you to draw near and be near to God. There's no crazy, but without him, we had no life. We were living in existence, but without true life. You know, I I wonder how many believers have experienced true life and then forgotten what it looks like, forgotten what it feels like, forgotten what it is like to be living in that true life, maybe it's a distant memory to you, maybe you just thought it was the honeymoon period of your faith, but I want to tell you that's the way you were meant to live, you were meant to live like Jesus lived, so watch Jesus, when you read the the word and you see how Jesus walked, the Bible says he had gladness above all his brothers, he was anointed with the oil of gladness. When you watch Jesus, how the Bible says in the book of Luke that he would often slip away to be with God. He would often slip away to pray and be with the Father. Often. It says he would slip away by himself. Now, Jesus, as we know, if if you've ever met anybody that was more prepared for ministry than Jesus, you're crazy. You haven't. You've never met anybody that was more prepared for ministry than Jesus. Jesus. That was more equipped. He was fully God and fully man. He was without sin, without flaw. And yet, that Jesus had to have time with God. Had to slip away and take time away from the world. Now, his ministry was to people, right? Jesus didn't come to be a hermit. He didn't come to be a cranky old man at the top of the hill. He He didn't come to do that. He came to minister to people to seek and save the lost, he said, right? So he wanted to be around people. He loved people. And yet he had to take time away. He had to take time away. And the time away, we often think that time away is just the time for our own internal batteries to recharge. That we need to take a vacation because we've been busy and we just need to take a breath. But I've discovered, and maybe you have too, that there's a fatigue That vacations can't fix. There there is a a refilling that Hawaii can't refill. There is something that takes place in in a believer when they are filled with the Spirit of God. When they are with God. When they draw near to God. That no holiday can fix. Because it's not about getting away from something. It's about getting away from something and going to something. Right? Right? When your car needs gas, it's not enough to pull off the highway and just hope it recharges because you're not running it anymore, right? You don't say, well, I turned off my engine. How long does it take to fill up? What if I just leave it for two hours and just sit here? It won't fill itself up, will it? I mean, you stopped running it. You stop draining it. Maybe you won't, get any, you, won't, you won't get any emptier, but you won't get any fuller. We all know it's not enough to turn the engine off. you got to put some gas in the tank. And so a lot of times we are so spiritually fatigued and worn out. I know many of you have stood in faith and you've battled battles and you've fought fights and and, and you've been standing and believing and and you go, you know what, I just need a break. And we think just taking a break is going to fix it. But in reality, it's just like pulling off on the side of the road and saying, I can't waste any more gas. Doesn't fix it, you got to fill up. It's not just, I mean, I don't want to commoditize God. I don't want to just say he's like a filling station. Because this is a relationship that's meant to be everything to us. It's not just about what we need from him, it's that we have a great need for him. You know what I mean? From him is life, in him is life. There's nothing outside of him. So you can imagine how messed up humanity might get without him. It's not hard to imagine. We can just look around, right? Look at your own life before you came to Jesus. Look at your own life without him. How messed up do things get without him? And so here we are standing as believers, and and God's given us access to himself, and he's rent the veil. He said, come on in. He said, come on in, friends, come on in, I'm I'm knocking at the door, hear my knock. This is what Jesus said, it's a crazy thought that Jesus says to a church in the book of Revelation, he says, and not just to that church, because he says, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, he who has ear to hear, so it's for everyone. But he says, I'm standing at the door and knocking, if any person would open the door, hear my knock, and open the door and let me in, I'll come in and I'll eat with them just imagine for a minute, what does it look like for Jesus to eat with you? Like, think about it. This is not a hypothetical, friends. Jesus said he would do it. So you've had meals with Jesus. I'm not talking about actually literally sitting at a table and imagining he's there. That's not what I'm talking about because that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about fellowship with him. He's talking about sharing his bread. He's talking about sharing his table. He's talking about breaking bread with you, giving life to you. He's talking about the life you get from that relationship. He does not want to yell at you from across the street. He's knocking at your door. And the crazy thing is, this is like your favorite. Well, I mean, it's not even like that. This is a billion times that. But can you imagine your favorite celebrity in the world? I don't care what field they're in whether it's, a, you know, whatever it is, because I don't want to be too specific because I might judge you for your choices, all right? But can you imagine <laughs> the one person, the one person you wish you could meet? Let's just say that. One person in the world you wish you could have a meal with. Now, imagine you weren't the one pursuing them. They were the one pursuing you. And you're like, well, I'm busy. i got stuff. Can you Can we talk spring? Sometime in the spring, things settle down. Can we talk then after the holidays? Can you imagine if they were bugging you and bugging you, and you're like, ah, later. And yet the creator of the universe, God himself, Jesus, that we read about, Jesus that we know, Jesus that we've received as Lord of our life, is knocking at your door. And what's the first thing he says? If you hear my knocking. I want to tell everyone here, You've all heard his knocking. Whether you responded to it or not, that's a different question, but you've all heard his knocking. In fact, even today, you might be hearing Jesus knocking. We say, Well, I've already let him in. I've already received Jesus. I'm saved. Praise God. So was everyone he was writing to in that letter. He's not talking about getting saved. Thank God, it's a great salvation message, but that wasn't the context. He was talking to believers. So he wasn't talking about you getting saved. For the first time, he was talking about having fellowship with his kids, having fellowship with his church, having fellowship with his people. He says, I want to eat with you. I want to share a meal. I want to spend time with you. Uh, Do you hear my knocking? Now, what happens when someone knocks? What what do you do? You open the door. Or you run in the basement, turn out the lights, and pretend you're not home. (laughs) Jesus doesn't do contactless delivery. He's going to come in. And you open the door. Okay. So if I'm hearing Jesus knocking this morning, if I was hearing it during worship, I was feeling like he's pulling on my heart. If I'm hearing it now through this message, I'm I'm starting to feel like God's like, where you are is not deep enough. Where you are is not close enough. You're talking to me through a door. But I want to be in the room with you. You're, 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 let, you're letting other people pass messages from me. I want to talk to you directly. So if you're here today saying, I'm starting to realize I'm not close enough. that he, he wants to be closer. Then you have to open some sort of door. There's a door that you got to open. What door is closed in your life that's keeping distance between you and Jesus? And it's different for everyone. But when you learn how to just say, all right, I'm opening the door wide open. And Jesus is one of those dinner guests. He's, I'm sure he's polite. I'm sure he's fun to have, but he's very straightforward. When Jesus comes, he doesn't pull punches. He wants to talk to you. He loves you enough to tell you the truth. And he will tell you the truth. That's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. And so if you're afraid of that, if you're afraid of change, if you're afraid of correction, if you're afraid of real, pure love, you'll keep some sort of door closed, even if it's like one of those bead curtains you know what I mean? Like one of those little bead curtains that if you go to a Middle Eastern restaurant and can't go to the back because there's a bead curtain. Even if it's that, open that. Open whatever it is. The curtains, the tent peg, uh, the tent flaps, whatever it is, open them up. Today, I just want to talk to you in, in, in Hebrews. Look at this. Uh, we're going to read the whole thing. No, we're not. Nobody believe me? All right, fine. That's good. All right. Hebrews 4. And uh, can I, oh yeah, yeah, can we just put our brains on for a second? Is that okay? It's school week. It's back to school week. So we're going to put our brains on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just teach you about two different verb tenses in the Bible. The minute I said verb tenses, some people's light switched off right then. But come back, come back to us. It's not going to be hard. <laughs> all right, all right. In the Bible... They, I mean, we, I'm not going to get deep into grammar here, but we're just talking about two different types of, 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 of statements in the New Testament that we see over and over again. We see indicatives and we see imperatives. All right? Stay with me. Don't go home yet. Indicatives and imperatives. Now, an indicative, notice what it sounds like. It sounds like indicate, Right? An indicative tells you something. It tells you a truth. It tells you, like an indicative says, this is what happened. This is what God did. This is what's real. This is what's true. That's an indicative. So God did this. That's the indicative. He's telling you what the Lord has done. But then there's an imperative. So indicatives are telling you what God did, or telling you what, what the reality is, or telling you what your new what's what's real in this new creation reality. An imperative is, here's what you do about it. Here's how you respond to it. An imperative is a command. If you'll read your New Testament, you'll always see that God always puts indicatives and imperatives together. God doesn't command you to do something without telling you, here's the, 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 here's the truth that's empowering you to do it. Here's the reality that makes this possible. Here's the promise that goes with the command. He doesn't just command. He puts a truth with it that can enable you to stand on it. And so when you read the Bible, always look for the indicative and the imperative. Look for what is God saying that's enabling me to do this. And then look for the imperative where he says, now here's what you do because if we just read if we read the scripture and, and we 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 see the imperative but we don't see the indicative then we're striving in our own flesh if i don't see why how god what god did for me that enables me to live this way or enables me to walk this way then i'll try to do it in my own flesh i won't be doing it in faith right and then on the other side if i'm if i'm just seeing the indicative and i never see the imperative then i'll just wonder why god's not doing anything in my life he wants me to be free He wants me to be uh, victorious. He wants me to to be obedient. He wants all these things. Why isn't this happening in my life? Because there's more than just God telling you this is what I want. He tells you, and here's how you do it. Here's how you walk in it. So I want you to see this as we go through Hebrews 4, because you're going to see a word like therefore. Therefore connects those two things. Right? Hebrews 4 has talked about, Entering into the rest of God, entering into God's rest, being diligent not to be left behind, but get into what he paid for. It talks about how the old covenant, all throughout Hebrews, talks about how the old covenant was good, but the new covenant is better and it's perfect. talks about how angels are great, but the sun is better. talks about the good and the, the perfect, and the old and then the new. And he doesn't want you to settle for the old. He wants you to go full into all that he's done for you. So here, he's begun to talk about how we're entering into his rest and how the word of God is living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the hearts and the thoughts of us and and to divide between soul and spirit. And it says that nobody's hidden from his sight. Nothing is hidden from him. We're all laid open before him. It says this in verse 14, Therefore, because of that, since we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So, did you see the indicative? The indicative is, He, we have a high priest. Now, first of all, what does it mean to have a high priest? Because some people are like, priest? I didn't know we believed in that here. I don't know we had priests. What's a high priest? The high priest was the person that stood on behalf of God to the people and on behalf of the people to God. The high priest was the one that made atonement for their sins. You see, God was never content being separate from his people. But what separated us from God? Sin. Whose sin? God's or ours? Ours. God didn't sin. He never wanted to be separate from you. We separated ourselves. God did not separate us. We separated us. Get that straight. No sin can stand in the presence of a holy God. If it did, it would die. Something will give. Either God will, God's holiness will give or our sin will give. Guess what? His holiness is never going to break. So we couldn't survive the encounter. We were separated from God, but God being rich in mercy. Because he loved us so much. Because he is love. Because he is good. Because he is to be glorified. Here's what happened. You guys know the story that he sent himself. He sent his son, Jesus, to take the very thing that separated us on himself and pay for it. The debt we could not pay so that we would no longer be separate. But we'd be reconciled to God. Brought back to life. That's good news. That's such good news. So a high priest, it says now Jesus is our high priest. In the Old Testament, they had a high priest that every year. Once a year, every year, that high priest would have to make a sacrifice for the people because it says year by year they kept sinning. Year by year they kept sinning, so there had to always be sacrifices on their behalf. But The Bible says in the New Covenant, because it says those sacrifices could never make you perfect. They could never really wash anything away. They could never fix the problem. They just covered it for a time. So the high priest had a permanent gig because we kept messing up. But here's the deal. That high priest was important because that high priest made atonement for your sin, for the people's sin, so that they could be near to God. Because, listen, God wanted to be with his people. He, he, he gave them a plan, a heavenly plan for a mobile temple. That's so cool, hey? When you think about the tabernacle, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert after they left Egypt, God gave them a plan for a mobile temple that the Bible says was patterned after what's in heaven. That's so cool. That God took a heavenly pattern and put it in mobile tent form so that these Stone Age people, Bronze Age people, could could walk around with the tent, set it up, and the presence of God would be in that tent. And all of this so that God could be near his people. You wonder, why were there so many rituals in the Old Testament? Because God had to make a way. God had to make a way for his people to be clean so that they could survive his presence. So that he could be near them. But in the New Covenant, the book of Hebrews says in the New Covenant something happened. Something amazing happened. Something beautiful and life-changing and world-changing happened. Jesus came and made one sacrifice for everybody. Never again, never again will there ever have to be another sacrifice for your sin. Never again will another high priest have to be raised up to make atonement and stand between us and God. There's only one person standing between you and God right now and he is not a wall, he is a bridge. He's not a barrier. He is the gateway. Hallelujah. That's Jesus. He's our high priest. The Bible says he makes intercession for us. He lives to do that. We're going to read that in a minute. But I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, because we have a great high priest. Who intercedes for us, who stands between us and God and connects us to God. Who has passed through the heavens. He has passed through the veil. He's passed through and and made a way for us. Jesus, the son of God. Let's hold tight to our confession. What does he mean? What's our confession? It's what we believe. It's what we say we believe. It's what we, we believe, therefore we speak. That's what confession is. Confession, you believe, therefore you speak. So let's hold tight to it. Let's not let go of it. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I want you to know, whatever you've ever been tempted with, anything you've ever been tempted with, Jesus has been tempted with it. You say, well, that's impossible. He didn't have the internet. That's impossible. He didn't have casinos. Every sin has a root sin. And every sin's root is rooted in a broken desire that was meant for God that we've directed towards other things. Every sin starts out of a broken desire, which is what we call lust. It's something you were designed. So, so well, let's talk about gambling for a second. We talk about casino or whatever. Let's talk about gambling. Why, is, why, why does gambling get a grip on people? There is a part in us that is supposed to depend on God as our provider. Is supposed to know that he will provide. But there is something that breaks in us when we start to think I'm my own provider. And then we realize I can't be my own provider. And then it feels good to entrust your fate to something else. And to say maybe that something will happen that will change my circumstance. Now, I'm not realizing this is not everybody's situation who's had a struggle with it, gambling addiction, but the, the broken place in us, we are meant to rely on God. We know somewhere deep in us that we can't do it ourselves, that we are meant to rely on Him as our provider, that He has set spiritual and physical laws on the earth, the law of sowing and reaping, all these things, and yet something gets broken in us, and we look to random chance as a provider. We look to these things, and, and for a minute, we think that maybe one thing can change everything, it's a broken desire. Now, every broken desire, every, every, every immorality, when, you, when you're, God created you to uh, love your spouse, if you're married, God created that. God put that in you. He put that attraction in you. He put that desire in you. And when that's broken, it messes up a whole lot of lives. Jesus was tempted with everything you'll ever be tempted with. Everything. Not one thing, you've been tempted with it, he hasn't dealt with the same root of that. He had to deal with it. So he knows your weaknesses because he's walked through it and he overcame them. That's a powerful thing. Apparently it matters because it mattered enough to be put in the scripture that we have a God who walked through humanity in its broken form. It would be one thing if God says, I know what it's like to be one of you. I walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Then I stopped walking with them when they messed up. But we actually have a God who came and bore our flesh and blood. And bore our infirmities on his back. Bore our griefs and our sorrows. Who has not just lived the human experience. He's experienced the worst of what humanity could do was put on him, and he can sympathize with you. He can feel the same thing as you, but he doesn't just sit there with your pain. How many of you know it's nice to have sympathy, but sometimes what you're looking for is not just sympathy, you're looking for help, right? Sympathy is nice, but if it doesn't fix something, it gets old. After a while, there, there doesn't really fix the fact that you don't have food on your table. Jesus didn't just come to sympathize with us. He came to heal us and restore us. Here's what it says. He's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, the indicative was this. He, we have a high priest, who's been tempted in all things, yet without sin. Here's the imperative. Therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near with confidence. To the throne of grace. So that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. I love that. Let us go. Allons-y. Let's go. Right, Moses? We. Let's go to the presence of God. Let's draw near with confidence. That word for confidence in the Greek literally means to speak boldly. Interesting, right? Why do I need to speak boldly in the presence of God? The same reason Esther had to have permission to speak before the king because you don't just walk in the presence of a king and start asking for stuff unless you've been given the right to. And God says, don't just come in my presence. Talk to me. What do you need? Because he says, here's what you'll find. You will receive mercy and you will find grace. Every human being, I don't care who you are, how long you've been saved, every person in this room needs to receive mercy and find grace. To receive mercy, what's mercy? Mercy is, I don't get what I deserve, thank God. Right? You ever see somebody and you're just like, that guy deserves a punch in the mouth, right? I mean, that's, but I'm walking in love, so he's not going to get what he deserves. (laughs) Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Half of that verse is mercy, the other half is grace. The half that's mercy is, the wages of sin is death. Jesus took my death, so I don't receive death. The grace is, the gift of God is eternal life. See, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. From the hand of God. Every time I come to God, he wants you to receive mercy and find grace. And what will that mercy and grace do in your life? What will that grace do in your life? It will help you in a time of need. How many people are in a time of need and have no idea how to approach God? You've been given a passport to the king. Who who has the answer? Who has the help? Who has the grace for you? His grace is abundant. And when you're tempted, and when you're struggling, and when you're sick, and when there's lack... And when there's fear and when there's all these other things and we look for another book that might deal with the issue. and We, we look for maybe, maybe somebody on TV has got an answer for me. Maybe someone on, on YouTube has got something I can believe in. And what God is saying is, that's all well and good, but here I am. Would you just come in? You have a ticket, a permanent place in my courts. Draw near with confidence. Not self-confidence, but Jesus' confidence. My confidence is in what Jesus did. I, you ever feel like I shouldn't be at this table? Like I should be at that table over there in the back. Why did they put me at this table? Like if you're at a wedding and, and you're, you're sat with all the important people as far as you can tell. You, you ever been at an event and you, they, they put you on the front row and you don't know why you're there? Somebody did something for you. Somebody made a way for you. There has been times I remember <laughs> I remember being with a friend. He was going to speak at this event, and it was at this coolest venue. It was at a really cool venue, and, and, and uh, I mean, with some really cool people that I wanted to meet. And I came with my friend and my friend. was was the guest speaker. And so I just got to walk with them, right? And I get to go in the back room and talk to these people. I'm like, I can't believe I'm in the same room as these people. And we're sitting there, we're talking, we're in this really cool venue that I'm getting to sit in the green room and oh man, this is so cool. And I'm realizing it's not because Jonathan Bounds from Lloyd Minster showed up. No offense to Lloyd Minster, but they didn't say from where now? Lloyd Minster. Oh, come on in. Jonathan, who now? Bounds? Come on in. No, it was who I was with. I was with someone that got me into the back room. I was with somebody that got me a seat at the front row. I was with someone that knew, that that they said, if you're with him, you can go in. That's what it's like to go in the presence of God. You walk in with Jesus. You walk in with his righteousness. Oh, we got a lot to say about righteousness. It might take us a two or three weeks to say it. And even then, we'll be cutting it a year short. We will talk about this. We must have speaks about this, all right? But here we're talking about drawing near to God. You walk in with Jesus, and then Jesus says, say it. I can't say it. Say it. What do you need? I can't ask. I just can't ask. I just can't say it. That's God right there. Just go ahead and say it. I've already paid for, the, I've already paid for it. Do you ever go out to eat with someone who says, order anything on the menu? And you're like, "Mm, what are you having? That's my move. If I know someone else is paying, I go, what are you having? I'll just have a salad. Me too. Just a salad. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) But people learn that trick. Your friends learn that trick, and they go, oh, no, you're not pulling that on me. You order anything you want on the menu. Well, I mean, on this side of the menu. No, no, go to the steak side. You order that. And if you don't, I'm ordering extra appetizers for the table. Have you ever been with someone like that? Jesus is like, come on, ask for it. I, you know what you need. Quit being arrogant and thinking you can do it by yourself. Quit being so proud and thinking you don't need God here. Ask for it. I've paid for it. It's already paid for. Ask. You need to receive mercy and you need to find grace. And the only place to find either of those things is in the presence of God. Draw near. Here is knocking. Open the door. I'm going to read some more verses to you, and I want you to let them sink into your heart. In Hebrews chapter 7, go ahead, skip a few pages forward. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. Talks about how he is a better high priest. Thank you, Jesus. He's a better high priest than they had. Talks about how the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Because the old covenant was based on a law that was perfect, but so perfect you could never reach it. He says this in verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. Hallelujah. On the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. How do I draw near? I draw near through that better hope. That's what brings me to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed they became priests without an oath. But he, with an oath, God made a promise through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The guarantee. Jesus is my guarantee. The former priests, on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they kept dying. That's what happens to humans. You ha- so they're saying, You're by- you always. We- if we look back in history, there have been a lot of high priests, he says, because people die. They were prevented by death from continuing. You get to a certain age, you can't just keep going. So they die. So you have to get a new high priest. But it says that's not the deal with Jesus. There's no other high priest coming. You know why? Because he's not going to die. He's died once and for all. And now he lives. And it says this. They were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, I love this on one hand, on the other hand thing. Because one of these hands really stinks. And one of these hands is really good. In fact, actually the one hand is not that bad. But this hand is so much better. On the other hand, Jesus, because he continues forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, so here's, that was the indicative, this is the imperative. Therefore, he is able, sorry, this is, this is still indicative. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does it mean that Jesus makes intercession for you? He is always standing on your behalf. He is always making the bridge. He is always interceding for you. God is for you. Jesus is, is for you. What a powerful thing. You know, the Bible goes, says in another place, it says, who, who would bring a charge against God's elect? What are we afraid of if God is for us? Who could be against us? What he's saying is if God is for us, what enemy is there out there that's bigger than that? What problem is there that's bigger than that? Friends, you don't have a problem bigger than this. This is the answer. I'm not minimizing your problems. I'm maximizing your God. I'm magnifying the name of the Lord. I'm not trying to minimize what you're going through. I know it seems big, and I know it's probably bigger than you, but it's not bigger than him. And he's interceding for you. He's standing in the middle between you and God so that you have a way to draw near to God because he lives forever. Listen to this. I love that. He is able to save forever. To save forever. That's an idea of salvation you can't even really get your brain around today, not, at least not before lunch. Like, he is able to save you forever. Continually save. That doesn't just mean salvation from hell. That that is salvation. That's rescue. That's everything. He is able to save forever. Who? Those who draw near to God through him. Salvation belongs to God is what the Bible says. That means you can't find it anywhere else. You can't find help anywhere else. You can't find rescue anywhere else. It belongs to God and unto the Lamb. I want to finish with this in Hebrews 10. Just go two more pages. Well, depending on your Bible, some of you have large, large print, and it's like five pages away. <laughs> I used to work at a Christian bookstore, and we had like large print, and then it was like large print's not that big. And then we had extra large, and then we had giant print. And then if you saw super giant, they sell super giant print Bibles. And now some of you are writing that down right now because you're like, that's, that's what I've been looking for, super giant print. Supergiant print is a big Bible, but it is supergiant print. So you, it takes like, uh, if your kids are learning in their memory verse, it's going to be like five pages. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a bit. <laughs> so a couple pages over, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. You know, do you well someday to tackle this as a divine project that will make your life so much better? Just read all of Hebrews as one letter. And then read it again. Then take your time. Chew it a bit. Read it again. You notice that it's all flowing together, right? But we're skipping all over the place because we don't have that much time. You have time. We did a study. I don't know how many of you are with us, but a couple years ago, maybe three, four years ago, we did a study in the book of Hebrews. We took like a year and a half, and it was probably some of my favorite sermons I've ever preached in my life. So if you go back on the website, on the podcast, there's a whole series on Hebrews and you go back and you can start in chapter 1 and go with us and then preach your own message because I'm sure you got something to say. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, why do we have confidence? Because Jesus made a way to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood is bigger. Amen? The blood is bigger than your failure. The blood is bigger than your inadequacy. The blood of Jesus is big enough for you. You're special, but you're not that special. You're not so special that you're the only one Jesus' blood's not big enough for. You're not the only one on the planet that he could not cover. His blood's enough for you. His blood does not just cover. It takes away the sin, and it draws you in. And by the blood of Jesus, I walk into the presence of God. Man, imagine yourself. Imagine yourself being a Hebrew, sitting outside the tabernacle. You walk in, but you can only go into the courtyard. You can't go further. Now, if you're a Gentile like me, can't even go that far. You peer in. Oh, but maybe you're a Jewish person. You can come in. You're an Israelite. You can come in. You can't go any further than that. You can't go in the holy place. You definitely can't go in the holy of holies. Now imagine you are a priest. and You can go into the holy place, but you better be clean when you get there. You better wash your hands. You better go through all the rituals so you don't die. You got these little bells on the bottom of your robe in case you die and they have to yank you out. The worst sound in the world would be jingle, 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 jingle. Pock. Oh, no. <laughs> Pull them in. <laughs> we got another one. But you can't go in the Holy of Holies. You wonder what it's like in there. You hear that God's unadulterated, pure presence is in there. Can imagine you are the high priest? Once a year, one man can walk into the Holy of Holies. And there's a thick veil preventing anyone else from going in. And preventing that, whatever's in there, from going out. And when Jesus died on the cross... Three in the afternoon, the sky became dark. The earth shook. The temple began to shake. And that thick veil was ripped from top to bottom. There will never be another barrier between humanity and the presence of God, and between the presence of God and humanity. And I don't know whether that veil ripped to let us in, or whether that veil ripped to let the presence out. But either way, we are now communing with God through Jesus Christ. says this, So therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, his flesh was the veil. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's the imperative. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. In full assurance of faith. Friends, I want you you to stop praying cowardly prayers. Don't pray selfish prayers, but don't pray cowardly prayers either. Like I shouldn't be asking. I shouldn't be here, God. Of course you shouldn't, but because of the blood of Jesus, you absolutely should. We have to consider righteousness right. Righteousness is right. It's right in the word. So if you've been made righteous, you have the right, and you are right to be there. So quit arguing with Jesus about it. Not me. Everyone else, not me. Yes, you. Right? If it's anybody, it's everybody that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And he says this, all right. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, thank God. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold tight. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the closer you see the day drawing near, the more you need to be drawing near. And we need to be drawing near together. Don't you see that? You're meant to draw near to God by yourself, but it sure seems to me that these thoughts are connected for a reason. We're meant to draw near together and come and behold God and, and ask, Lord, we need help right now. This is a critical time in our nation. It's a critical time in our world. If, if, if believers won't intercede, who will? If believers won't intercede for Canada, who's going to do it? If we won't come into the presence of God and say, "We need help." Who's going to do that? Draw near. God's calling you closer. I believe today there's a knocking on hearts. I believe there's I believe when we read the word, the Bible says when we read the word, when the word is read, veils fall off eyes. That's what the Bible says. It says the veil is lifted. Whenever the word is read, it says the veil is lifted. So I, I think to, this morning, the veil is lifted when you, when you heard the word of God and there is a knocking. Because really the knocking of Jesus is his own voice, right? He doesn't knock with his fist. He knocks with his voice. He calls out. And he, he said in this, in John chapter 10, he said, the way I lead my sheep is with my voice. How, how will you follow the shepherd if you can't hear his voice? How will you hear his voice if you don't just... Act on it every now and then and trust them. Because I'll tell you what, you don't learn overnight that you're right or wrong. You, you learn through practice. Yeah. So Jesus is knocking. He's calling. Yeah. Whoever will hear that knock and open the door, he'll come in. Oh, thank you, God. The Bible says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. It says cleanse your hands. Wash your hands. How do we wash it? By the blood of Jesus. How do I draw near? I draw near in heart. Amen. I draw near with my actions. Right? The Bible says in the Old Testament, I'm just going to tell you this real quick, but the Bible says in the Old Testament that the people drew near with their lips but not with their hearts. And he says the proof of it is look at your life. Look at your life. You're not drawing near to God. I draw near by saying I'm going to walk after you. I'm going to walk where you walk. Jesus is not a statue. He's alive, so you got to follow. If the disciples worshipped a statue, they could just stay there all they wanted. But because he was alive, they had to go somewhere. They had to walk with him. They had to keep watching him. You couldn't just get his location once. You had to keep following. On my iPhone, you can, I can send someone a pin of where I am, or I can share my location with them. I have the option, depending on how much I trust you, to tell you where I am or to give you the kind of access where you can tell where I'm going. Where you can see a pen moving on a map and go, he's moving, he's on the move, let's follow him. You don't just tell everybody that because that's a great way to have stalkers, right? (laughs) Not that I'd have one. (laughs) I don't know anyone that would want to stalk me, but you know. Jesus is not sending you a pen. He's sharing his location. He's saying, follow me. I'm going to keep talking to you. Stay on the line. I'm going to lead you. Keep the phone on. I'm going to keep talking to you. Let's go west now. Let's go north. Go here. So today I want you to respond to that. Would you stand with us? We're going to pray and believe that as the Lord is knocking, you're opening something. I want you to open the doors of your life. Jesus doesn't want to be Lord of a corner or closet. He wants to be Lord over everything. He wants to be the head of the house. Stop giving Jesus your Sunday and give him your life. Stop giving Jesus your five minutes of prayer time before you go to bed and give him your life. Stop giving Jesus 10% and give him everything. This is what he wants. He wants you. Jesus was never after your talent or your cash, or whatever. He's after you. And when he has you, you give everything. But he wants you. That's all he wants is you. And with that comes my life, my talent, my treasure. Everything I've got is his. But he wants you. Today he's knocking. And the good news of the gospel is that (laughs) we could not find his door, so he found ours. The good news of the gospel is I could not make my way to God, so God made a way to me. The good news of the gospel is I couldn't build a bridge big enough to cross the chasm, so he built a bridge with his own body to me. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died so that I'd come alive. I'd come back and be reconciled to God. So believers, if you're a believer this morning and you've been reconciled to God, then why would we stay at a distance from God? Why do our lives reflect distance instead of nearness? David said, I delight in your nearness. Delight in his nearness. Lord, we want to know your nearness.